HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. Learn more at appeal.com. This week on Meat and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I am your host, Katie Kiefer, and with me today is the one and only uh, Tom Philpot from Mother Jones Magazine. Tom is the food and agricultural correspondent for Mother Jones, where he writes the Food for Thought blog online and contributes features and editorials to the bi-monthly print magazine. Um, and his new book, which came out just a couple of weeks uh, months ago, Perilous Bounty, should be your go-to holiday gift this year uh, for anybody who's interested in the food industry and how we produce food in this country. It is a must-read. So, um, uh, yeah, available wherever books are sold, right? Um, so, Tom, uh, we're you know we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna try this again. Um, one of the first things I wanted to talk to you about uh, is the Justice for Black Farmers Act. Um, what is that and who is responsible for it? Hey, Katie, thank you so much for having me back again. And uh, I'm still sort of getting my head around the idea of Perilous Bounty as a Christmas present. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it should be. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, give your give your friends and family the gift of a very scary book about agriculture. <laughs> All um, right. Yes. <laughs> Way to heart everyone's mellow for 2021. <laughs> well, I mean, yes. Get the scales off of your eyes about the agriculture system. Yeah. Um, well, we will talk more about the agricultural system in just a moment um, because your book is very germane to our new agricultural secretary, our new old secretary. But anyway, mm -hmm. to go back to the Justice for Black Farmers Act, I, yes. I got to say, I never thought I'd live to see the day. I really didn't. Yeah, that we would I, have anything even close to this kind of legislation proposed. Never mind what happens to it. So, so again, who, what exactly is entailed in this, and and who yes. is behind it? So, I had the same reaction, Katie. So, this is a bill put forward by uh, Senators Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren, or the the two lead sponsors, and Kirsten Gillibrand is a co-sponsor. Um, and it, um, what it tries to do is address in a pretty substantial way this whole problem of African-American land loss in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and I got to say, when I first was, you know, given a copy of it before it came out, you know, I was expecting, you know, some programs to deal with racism at the USDA, which it does indeed have. It's money for training, maybe some grant, you know 
financial grants for new right. African American farmers. But this is actually a it, and this and the bill has all of that in it. But what's kind of stunning is that it has substantial amounts of money um, on order of about twenty billion dollars a year, and I think it maybe lasts ten years. Uh-huh. I think the idea is to is to have it going for ten years. And this amount of money would be devoted to buying land and granting it to um, beginning and existing African-American farmers. Um, and, and so that might sound crazy. Like, what is this idea behind this big land giveaway? And I, I think there are two answers to that question. One of them is that... Um, so African-American um, land, the history of African-American land, land ownership in the United States is obviously quite vexed. So, we you know, first we have, right. you know, multiple centuries of slavery uh, and then the Civil War uh, and the end of slavery. And there was this idea of reconstruction, a program of reconstruction. Um, and a big part of that, that idea was because um, most black people, most um, slaves, most enslaved black people in the United States were in an agrarian situation. They were on land, um, you know, with their labor and lives stolen. And, you know, the idea was to, that as part of citizenship, as part of being, you know, folded into the American Republic, they would get land. Um, and of course, um, Reformation had a lot of potential. There were a lot of great things about it. Um, but I mean, not Reformation, Reconstruction is what I mean. Um, right. There, there are a lot of great things about it, but it came under immediate racist attack, including from the president who replaced uh, Abraham Lincoln after he was shot. Andrew Johnson was a Southerner and very anti, very, very racist and anti-Reconstruction. Yeah. And, um, and so through the, over the decades, through the collapse, of, you know, the, the effective collapse of Reconstruction under racist pressure, by 1920, African Americans had some substantial stake of land, and and this land was 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 won and kept with blood. Um, you know, racist attacks, um, you know, land theft by you know forces like the Ku Klux Klan. Um, sure. And so there was this uh, this substantial black land ownership around 1920. And what happens in 1920 is you get a resurgent Ku Klux Klan um, and you get, you know, essentially the same, you know, going as the decades go on, the same farm crisis, the same sort of permanent farm crisis that affected um, white landowners where crop prices are falling. Um, you know, you have to get bigger and bigger to make a profit. So the entire farm economy starting around 1940 or so really consolidates. This is a story we all know. There's you know, fewer and fewer, bigger and bigger farms. But yeah. the difference between the experience of white farmers and black farmers is that when white farmers were forced to sell out by low commodity prices and you know, various um, farm crises over the decades, other white landowners would buy their land. Mm-hmm. When black farmers were forced to sell their land by the same forces, white farmers would buy their land. And so between 1920 and uh, around 2000, 90% of Black-owned farmland was lost, and it was lost to white people. And the USDA played a huge role because, you know, in those decades of farm crises, um, USDA programs like loan guarantees and things like that were extremely important. A lot of farmers needed to borrow money to um you know, to, to basically buy their inputs for the season. Sure. Uh, and, you know, the idea was, you know, I'll, I'll buy my seeds and, and chemicals and I'll pay the loan back when I, when my harvest comes in and I'll make a little bit of money too. But if you can't, if you don't have financing to start the season out, then that, that doesn't work. And so there was all of this denial of loan, you know, there's, there's decades of discrimination on loans by the USDA. And then there was this other thing where, because of racism and Jim Crow, especially in the South, black people didn't often have access to good legal services to do things like make wills. Right. And so what happened was you get this, this thing called heirs property, where property passes on to heirs without any clear title. Like no one of the you know four siblings has a title. 
And then they all have kids. And now there are, you know, let's say 16 grandkids that, um, that are, uh, you know, own the land, but no one has clear title. And when you right. go to, to, to get a loan and you don't have clear title, then you're going to get denied that loan. And so that was another big force in, um, in pushing black people off of land. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, basically what, what you have today is um, the number of black farmers, of course, that are remnants are a rounding error in, the, in terms of percentage of U.S. farmers. And the amount of land owned by black farmers is tiny. It's less than, you know, 5% of U.S., much less than 5% of U.S. farmland. Yeah. And so what this bill does is not a reparations bill because it's not trying to make right the, you know, the crimes of slavery. It's, it's sort of, it's addressing much, much more recent crimes, crimes that took place over the last century, not, not, you know, several centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... That's what's so revolutionary about it. And then, you know, it's got some other stuff in it, like um, it creates a cadre of people who, of young, young folks who want to farm, um, can, can get a minimum wage job paid by the government on the uh, minimum wage plus housing paid by the government on, you know, farms of a certain small size. Um, and so they can do these internships and learn how to farm and provide labor to these farms without costing the, the farmers money. And, right. uh, and then the, the kids, the, the people that go through this program will then be first in line for land grants. And I don't think that program would be only for African-Americans, but African-Americans who participate would, would get uh, preference for these land grants we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And you know the other really important thing to say about these land grants is that, of course, our whole country was settled by land grants. The whole, you know, my book has a huge section on the Corn Belt. Yeah. And that whole area was settled by, you know, basically the federal government, you know, claimed land, stole land, grabbed land, and then populated it by giving settlers grants of 160 acres. And so, right. and, you know, interestingly, that same number of acres is the, um, is the upper limit for these land grants. And so, you know, I, I think I talked to Cory Booker from my article that I did a few weeks ago, and you know, that's very much the idea. It's like, okay, this is a tool that we've used in American history, and it's created this incredible amount of wealth. Like the amount of wealth created among white, you know, basically among white farmers by the land grant system is in the trillions. Uh, you think about just all of that really expensive land, you know, how like land in places like Iowa and Nebraska is really Absolutely. expensive. Absolutely. Very expensive. Massive fortunes have been, or in the Delta, uh, land in the, in mm-hmm. the Delta uh, has gotten very pricey. Hedge funds are coming in and buying it up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so African-Americans have been completely shunted out of that, um, that wealth creation process. And so this is an attempt to, um, to right that wrong. And it, it's happening at a time when there's a lot of energy among young African-American people to, um, to learn how to farm. Um, you know, people like Karen Washington has been, she's an um, a urban uh, farmer in, in the Bronx who's now involved in a farm outside of the city. Right. Or Leah Penniman, right? And Leah Penniman, who, right. um, who Real came poster through, girl for that. Uh, uh, Mama Karen, as she calls her, uh, Karen Washington's um, programs, and so there, so there is this energy. So it's a confluence of political energy and also energy on the ground for people like Leah Penniman, who does Soul Fire Farm in in upstate New York and has a, a very active training program. So you know, Leah understands. You go through her her training program. Uh, and you learn all these skills, well, how are you ever going to get land with land costs uh, so expensive? And so this this bill, um, which I, you know, I think we can say right now has a vanishingly tiny chance of getting passed <laughs> anytime soon, but this bill would, um, you know, do something about that. Mm-hmm. And does the bill address... Um you know, some of the more institutionalized aspects of how the USDA has consistently discriminated against black farmers. I mean, you know, you talked a minute ago about the difficulty of getting, um, of having, uh, you know, banks lend to black farmers. 
um, through any kind of federal, you know, uh, monetary policy. What, what, what can the USDA change um, that will make it easier for black farmers to get a start aside from the land, actually the land itself, but then, you know, what about getting financing for equipment or seeds? What about um, getting the legal, you know, assistance that is often required to, to navigate some of the zoning issues around farmland and, you know, those kinds of aspects, which are pretty, you know, they're, you don't think of that stuff when you're setting out to farm, but that's really, you're, it's going to make or break you, um, your yeah. access to, find, to capital and so forth. So how, how will the USDA change some of their practices um, on the, on the sort of administrative side? Of farming. Yeah, so um, I did. I did learn some stuff about that. So um, the the sort of intellectual heft behind the bill um, comes from a set of, of of folks who have thought those questions through really well. There's this guy named Nathan Rosenberg. He's a um, he's at Harvard Law. He, he, he's in something called the um, it, it's a it's it's a food law program at Harvard that that he's involved with and. Um, he's working with these heavyweight intellectuals like Derek Hamilton, who I believe is now at Columbia, and this guy named Thomas Mitchell, who is down at Texas A&M, and he just won a MacArthur Fellowship. Um, and his specialty is African-American, African-American land loss. And so right. these guys, this, this crew is really deep into the details of these USDA programs. Right. And so the bill has a lot in it about, you know, basically creating an independent watchdog within USDA to make sure that um, civil rights complaints are taken seriously, something that they have not been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, it, and, and so it, it creates a lot of oversight within the USDA to, you know, finally ring out sort of structural racism within it, or at least that's the intention. <laughs> but but these folks are really aware of that, and they worked really hard with with Warren and Booker on on writing it. And then beyond that, it, it you know it also has a, sophi- a sophisticated understanding of how tough it is to make a living farming out there. So you you uh-huh. grant people farmland, and um, and then you know we're in a situation still to this day where small and mid sized farms are going out of business at a rapid clip and bigger and bigger farms are getting more and more of the, um, of the market. And so it, it's got some stuff in it, you know, to make sure that markets are fair. It, you know, we can walk out on this show about the <laughs> gypsum rules. I'm sure you've had people on, on, on oh, there yeah. talking about, talking the about gypsum for 10 years. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so it, um, it would specifically strengthen that. Um, and so it's making some efforts to, you know, create a, uh, a more level playing field. And the same folks that are behind it, Warren and uh, and Booker, are also behind, are also pushing agricultural policies that would, you know, basically make it easier for small and mid-sized farms to, um, to survive. You know, things like... Um, I think both of them have um, deconsolidation bills. Cory Booker's got a great bill, basically busting um, up the big um, meat companies. Yes, um, they they both push policies that would um, would pay farmers for ecosystem services like sequestering carbon, um, keeping water clean, and things like that. That could really benefit small farms that that will you know by necessity. I mean, I think if you're going to be a small farmer at that scale, I mean, it's literally it's like one to 160 acres. You're probably going to be doing things organically because you want to just, you're not, you're not going to be, you're not going to get a grant like this and go put in 160 acres of corn and soybeans because you know you're going to get crushed. <laughs> right. You know, you're going to get yeah. four, you know, three to four dollars a bushel for that corn and your neighbor's got a farm, you know, 15 times as big. And he's going to make it and, and you're probably not. So you're, you're going to be doing yeah. things to distinguish yourselves. And, you know, they are working on other ag policies that would make it um, more, make it easier to survive doing those kinds of things. And so I, I think they are very aware of these issues. And the, the USDA piece, w- without walking out too much, 
seems really strong in this bill that would really force the USDA to change its ways. That's very encouraging. So given that I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to go right. I mean, this segues us directly into the next part of the show, which is to talk about our new secretary of agriculture, Tom Vilsack, our old secretary of agriculture. But before we go there, I just since we both agree that this has a very slim to no chance whatsoever of passing, particularly if McConnell retains majority leadership, um, some of these provisions could be rolled into the next farm bill. Um, how do you think that that's a more likely way to see um, things like the land grants or the you know uh, funding for uh, young people to work uh, for free with room and board um, for for knowledge, um, and then the farmer you know gets paid or whatever how, you know however that's going to work out. Um, but that they that farmers somehow you know reap the benefits of having labor low or or no cost labor as long as they impart sufficient information to those um, you know laborers. I yeah. mean, is that is that something that can be rolled into the farm bill? Do you think fairly easily, or is that something yes. that's going to require a separate piece of legislation? Um, I mean, I think that, the, I think the best immediate hope for it would be the the farm bill, which I think comes up in 2023. And mm-hmm. I, I was talking to um, Booker staff about that, you know, about this sort of like, what are the political realities here? Yeah. And obviously with Mitch McConnell, um, you know, it's not going to happen in the next Congress. But I think the hope is that it gets momentum, it gets conversation. And I think, you know, conversations like what we're having, stuff like my article, you know, mm-hmm. getting the idea out there and sort of breaking the taboo uh, on on the topic is is really important. But, you know, they did mention that the, the 2023 Farm Bill would be a target for, like, you, you could think of a title, like a Justice for Black Farmers title mm-hmm. in the Farm Bill. Now, obviously, between you know, here and there, there's huge obstacles. Um, we, you know, we have no idea what the Congress, what's going to happen in the midterm election right? and things like that. But, you know, if things move in, in the right way, it's, you know, conceivable to get some of it into the farm bill as a, as a separate title. Um, and, you know, certainly Booker and, and Warren are, pretty savvy members of Congress and have allies, you know, maybe a couple of allies on the, on the ad committee. Right. Um, so it's really, I, I think, I think, yes, you're thinking, you're, you're thinking correctly that this is sort of a trial balloon that could get picked up in a farm bill. But I think that the real key thing is how much political power can the idea uh, pick up between now and then. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and that takes us right back to the, the midterm elections. Yeah, um, it sure does. But, yeah. Let, let's take a quick break. And then I want to talk about the Ag Committee, uh, which has a new chairman and and so on. So we'll, we'll be right back with Tom Philpot. We're going to take a quick sponsor drop right now. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at Heritage Radio Network, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. A peel works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Here we are. It's back. 
to the real deal here. Actually, no, that really should be the name of this show. I'd love yes. to change the name of this show. I've always <laughs> hated this title. Um, anyway, uh, we are, in case you're just tuning in, which I know you're not, because when people listen to a podcast, you listen from the beginning to the end. But whatever, I always like to say. Speaking with Tom Philpot from Mother Jones, um, we've just been reviewing uh, an incredible piece of legislation uh, called the Justice for Black Farmers Act. Um, and so to continue sort of on that theme of what the midterm elections and the Farm Bill and Senate majority leadership and so forth, um, what kind of impact all of those variables will have on the success or failure uh, of implementing at least some of the um, measures that are uh, proposed in the Justice for Black Farmers Act. Um, we have a new uh, top Democrat on the House Agricultural Committee, um, Colin Peterson, who I knew absolutely nothing about until he was defeated, um, has been replaced by someone named David Scott from Georgia. Um, now, Peterson had held that post since 2007. And as I am, as you know, what I've read, what little I've read about him, uh, he was a staunch friend of the agribusiness uh, with a capital A. Um, what, what, what do you suppose the, um, the bent of Mr. Scott is going to be from Georgia? Will he be a sort of a cookie cutter version of that? Or will he actually, um, you know, support things like Justice for Black Farmers Act? Well, the first thing I should say about him is that um, I just became aware that there is a webinar being held on December 11, and I don't know when we're running this episode. Probably tomorrow, but, but yeah. Yeah, so it's happening on December 11, Friday, December 11 at 5.30 Eastern Time, uh-huh. and it's Booker and David Scott and Stacey Abrams talking oh, wow. about the Justice for Black Farmers Act, and so that's... That's the first indication for me that that David Scott is um, is into this thing, um, and cool. suddenly he's got a lot of say because he is the House. You know, like you said, he's the the leader of the House Ag Committee. We, um, I don't think he has been. You know, he's the first African American to hold a job, and that's that's something. Um, one thing about Colin Peterson that's really important to understand is that he was literally a well he was very close to being a, a climate denier uh, he constantly belittled climate change yes. he would say stuff like well if it's going to be warmer in the midwest then you know my constituents can grow more corn you know he's he's from a very corn centric part of minnesota uh-huh. and um you know that would be the extent of his climate change um you know talk and David Scott, you know, he's he's down in Georgia. He's in an ex-urban part of Atlanta, sort of kind of a part of Atlanta that, as I understand it, is between rural and sort of the edge of the city. So th- there is, and he's been in the ad committee for a while too. He's been in the ad committee for about ten years. Uh huh. Um, he has written some very eloquent things about climate change and how important it is. And I think right there you get a big switch. Uh, yes. From, from Colin Peterson. Yeah. Um, if he's endorsing this Justice for Black Farmers Act, I think that's very interesting. And he's rubbing shoulders with Cory Booker, who, you know, has become something of an of an ag radical. Um, I feel like he, he came real? to the Senate kind of a conventional sort of corporate Democrat. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, in the past four or five years is really getting some policy chops uh, and doing genuinely progressive agricultural um, policy. And I talked to him for the piece I did and he knows what he's talking about. Like he's, he's read about these issues. He's, he's super into them. And if if Scott's rubbing shoulders with a guy like that, um, I think that's a pretty good sign. Um, We'll, we'll have to see. And, um, and I think, you know, farm bills, end up they start to get written a couple of years you know as, as long as two years before sure um they, they come up and so we could even see in 2021 um a start of a farm bill draft in that committee and so i you know i'm going to be watching really closely you know obviously georgia is big ag country there's you know mm-hmm. giant cotton interests there there's, there's cotton um, there's rice there's hogs Oh, yeah. Cotton, rice, hogs, uh, significant fruit and vegetable Peaches. production, but it's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a sort of, um, you know, large scale uh, H2, with H2A workers kind of uh, fruit and vegetable yeah. production. So it's, it's a pretty big ag state. And, you know, if he rose to the top of the House Ag Committee, then, you, you, you know, you figure that he's made his peace with some of those forces. But 
I'll, you know, I just have to admit that I ha- I need to dig more into him. But the, yeah. um, the, the first things that I'm seeing are pretty encouraging, especially compared to Colin Peterson. Yeah, it sounds like it would be difficult to fail to improve on him. Um, I want to jump ahead for a second to um, an op-ed that uh, Mark Bittman and, and Ricardo Salvador um, wrote for the New York Times. I think it was on December 3rd. I know you saw this. Um, and I'm going to read a little quote from it. Um, sort of uh, consider they're in a, an ellipse right now, but cash crops grown primarily for processing or trade rather than for eating, a brutally exploited workforce they're describing, you know, our current practices. This has become the norm and has been consistently promoted by recent secretaries of agriculture and most recently by the incumbent and agribusiness veteran by whom they are referring to Sonny Perdue. Um, but they might as well be <laughs> Talking about Tom Vilsack, frankly, Um, um, that template still benefits mainly the global conglomerates that sell to and buy from farmers to the great economic detriment of the majority of farmers and their rural communities, and especially to that of the largely immigrant workforce that replicates, replicates the work of the formerly enslaved with a largely imperceptible improvement in their treatment. So in other words, this is, you know, this has been our model for, I'd say the last 40 years, conservative. Um, what, what, you know, there, I, I love these two guys, Mark Bittman and, and Ricardo yeah. Salvador, especially Ricardo. Um, and I, I have the greatest respect for their intelligence, but I, I'm, I'm still not seeing, I, I I'm not getting the solutions part of their, <laughs> their analysis. And I, I wondered what you, uh, how you saw things, uh, changing, um, especially in light of uh, our, you know, our new old Secretary of Agriculture, which who we will discuss in just a second. But what yeah. are, what are they talking about changing? Like, how are they going to make? You know, how are they going to? How are we going to alter this deeply entrenched system that is globally supported? I mean, I think they were trying to to put a stake in the ground while Biden was was picking his ag secretary, and yeah. you know. Sure. Using their their platform and, you know, able to get in the Times op-ed page. And I, I think they were just sort of trying to get the ear of, of, the, of, the, of the transition and say, you know, here is a way of thinking about this USDA job. And, you know, they, they called for the, the department to be renamed Department of Food and Well-Being. Am I right? Right. Yes, that's right. Um, not sure what I, if that was the best way to best way to go, but I see what they're doing there. And um, I can almost assure you that both Ricardo and, and Mark Bittman are bitterly disappointed in the, the choice of, um, of Vilsack. But, you know, I, I just think that we're trying to sort of like, you know, give people in power a different way of thinking about this, which I, I think is is valuable. But, um, but, you know, as you know only too well, it's like, Changing foreign policy is really hard because, you know, it's basically this once every five year process called the Farm Bill that, there, you know, there's a, a Senate um, committee leader and a House committee leader. Right. You know, right now this, the Senate is in Republican hands um, and it's just really hard to imagine those two organizations, you know, those two outfits coming together with the Farm Bill that is going to come anywhere close to what what Bittman and and Ricardo were talking about or what what you or I would like to see and you know they understand that I think but you know I think they're just trying to sort of create intellectual space for us to rethink this thing and and also I mean I think that at a certain point when you've been doing it as long as those guys have been thinking about the stuff as long as I've been thinking about it, as long as you you've been thinking about about it. At a certain point, there's this this feeling of oh my god, we're really going to do this again. We're really going to come up with the same old farm bill that entrenches these same interests. Yeah. You know, how how do we get it to stop? Um, and you know, writing op eds is i mean that's that's what i do i mean you, you do a podcast i i yeah. write we, we do what we can um but I, you know i think that like where i ended up at the end of my book you know making some similar points to what they were what they were just making is that it's gonna take people getting out in the damn streets um and i think that we can look at 
climate policy for inspiration because yeah. I think that climate protests um, have risen dramatically in the past decade as climate events have gotten lots and lo- lots worse. These sort of big weather-related catastrophes that we've seen. Sure. And, you know, things like, you know, people getting out in the streets and blocking um, pipelines. Um, you know, I, two major pipelines in the past decade have been blocked. Um, the drop in oil prices was a factor, but another factor was people getting out in the streets. And I think that that is, you know, you know, I think the reason to write op-eds or the reason the reason to write a book like Perilous Bounty is to hope that people read it and become mobilized by it because otherwise the inertia is just, you know, so intense. And, mm-hmm. and, and believe me, I've been um, pretty depressed the past couple of days about, you know, I cannot believe we've gone through this horror show of the Trump administration and Sonny Perdue. <laughs> and we get that crew out of there, at least theoretically, um, get them out of there. I'm sure that they will vacate when, when they're supposed to, I hope. Um, and then we're, we're going back to Vilsack. Um, yeah. That's just, you know, that is just really disappointing. But, you know, I, I think that was their goal, really, was that, um, to give the transition something to think about. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think that's a, a, a fine and worthy goal. And I, I'm sure they're just devastated. Um, at this direction. Sure. But, you know, I mean, it's, 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 I think I, what irritates me about this (laughs) is, is that I feel like there needs to be some thought devoted to a very specific blueprint on how to kind of unwind um, the way we uh, manage our trade, for example, um, Mm. or, you know, then there's also the part of which, of course, has such a big impact on what we grow. Um, so, you know, there's that there's one aspect of that. Then there's also the fact that farmers who have invested heavily in uh, growing, you know, commodity crops um, because they were told that's what they needed to do. And that's where they got money for growing those crops. And they get their, you know, they get all those cash incentives, whether it's subsidies or an insurance or whatever, um, you know, to continue that model, you know, trying to get them to get off that train um, and retool their equipment and retool their fields and the way they do business and how they move their product to marketplace and all of that stuff. Like, no, I don't really hear anyone coming up with a blueprint to even start to move that conversation forward in a meaningful way. I mean, that's what I find so um, frustrating about, you know, you know, it's, I mean, I found it when I wrote my book, it was like, I don't know the answer to getting rid of the meat industry. I just know that we can't keep doing it, you know? And, and so I, you know, I, I feel like there's gotta be somebody, you know, who's way smarter than me. Um, Maybe it's you, Tom, (laughs) who's going to start saying, well, look, if we do X, Y, and Z in our trade uh, policies and our trade partnerships, then that will have, you know, this outcome. And if we, you know, incentivize, you know, as you were talking a minute ago about, uh, you know, giving farmers in the next farm bill sort of better incentives for, um, you know, managing their crops or their effluent or whatever it may be, uh, you know, that, that more than beyond the conservation stewardship program, you know, more incentives to be better stewards of the land, things like that. I mean, I, I, I feel like that's, you know, we got to start with the farmers and then, and then just kind of move on from there, like figure out how to help them make those changes, even as we retool our own uh, trade policy and how we get food around the country, how we feed our people instead of having so many hungry households as we do now. Um, so let's let's jump in because we don't have too 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 much more time. But let's talk about Tom Vilsack. Now you wrote a really great piece, um, which I hope everybody saw. And if you didn't, it's it's called Biden. What is what did you call it? it was such a good title? Biden like picks another piece of stale white bread. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> so yeah, I was pretty. I was pretty mad. <laughs> well, that was. I mean, that was just a great. Uh, really, you know, it made me laugh and cry at the same time. So, so um, let's you know, let's let's quickly run through some of the top hits. 
of Vilsack's uh, eight-year cabinet tenure uh, under the yeah. Obama administration. Because he came in with Kathleen Merrigan, know your farmer, know your food. Oh, we were all going to get all warm and fuzzy. And we grew like 5,000 new farmers markets. And then it kind of like, it all went away. Like that didn't go yeah. away, but Kathleen Merrigan went away. And the and the focus on small and medium-sized farms really diminished in the second half of uh, Obama's oh, yeah. presidency. So let's, let's go with the top hits. And we, we still, still don't know don't, why. Right. Why she went away. Um, she has not publicly said. She has not. There, and I there asked. Are whispers that <laughs> it, that their relationship wasn't the best, but um, but yeah, she has not said why she went away. But um, you know, it's worth noting that the person who took her place is a woman named um, Krista Harden mm-hmm. uh, as deputy secretary, and Krista Harden went from. The Obama administration's uh, USDA to um, Corteva, which is a, um, a is a giant, you know, oh yeah, it's basically giant the agribusiness arm of Dow and Dupont. Right. And what is she doing now? She's the chief operating officer of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, meaning she's working for Vilsack, uh, who's right. the executive director. We, for those uh, who didn't that follow, thing. that he he walked right through the revolving door into that he, very creepy he sure job. Did. And I just want to <laughs> say. Um, something that I didn't get into my piece, but I did um, get into one of my many Twitter rants that I've done over the past <laughs> couple of days. And that is that I think it's significant that Vilsack went to the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Um, and that's what he's been doing for the last four years because the whole, you were talking about trade policy a second ago, and the whole promise of this policy that we have of essentially structural overproduction. Essentially, right. we're giving farmers incentive to way overproduce. Right. And what the message has been, really since Earl Butts in the early 70s, the message has been overproduce, produce as much as you can. Um, don't worry about prices dropping because we will basically export our way out of this. We will mm-hmm. take your excess and we'll find a market um, you know, somewhere else, we'll find buyers outside of the country. You've yeah. pr- produced too much for this country, and that will raise prices, and you will be getting paid in the market. You're getting, you'll be getting a decent uh, price in the market, and that has completely failed, despite yes. you know surging exports for decades. And the reason why it's failed is because. People in other countries are doing the exact same thing. Like look at Brazil and Argentina um, ripping up incredibly um, pristine and valuable land to grow corn and soybeans for the global market. Look at Ukraine doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So all these different countries are doing that. And um, the price just keeps, you know, dropping below the cost of production and nowhere is that more evident than in the dairy industry where Vilsack is. There is yes. structural overproduction. And this, th- there's this idea of don't worry about it. We'll, you know, we'll just export it. Um, but, you know, you've got these other countries like New Zealand that actually have um, a great place to, to, to do dairy. And they're doing the same thing. And so it's just not helping at all. And, of course, Vilsack is in the middle of that. Um, and, and, you know, the situation works great for the big processors because, you know, the, 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 the big dairy processors get this cheap raw ingredient and they've got Vilsack, you know, over there selling milk for them in Southeast Asia um, sure. at, at, at profitable rates. But it's not enough. It's never, ever going to be enough to make the price of milk go up to a level that's paying farmers and is keeping mid-sized dairies or small dairies on the land. It's just never, ever, ever going to happen. And, um, and so that's why we're seeing this, you know, collapse of dairy farming, small and mid-sized dairy farming in places like Wisconsin. Now it's the, um, the number of bankruptcies of dairies is just heartbreaking there. Oh yeah. And, and so Vilsack is just right in the middle of this, you know, it's, it's basically a lie and he's, he's right in the middle of it. Now, in my piece, I went over some of the stuff that he did that, you know, really just, um, uh, it just makes me facepalm that he's coming back. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, basically the meatpacking worker crisis, um, the whole thing can't be laid to this, this coronavirus disaster that's been, has been visited upon meatpacking workers. Um, 
a lot of it has to do with how fast the the, the kill line goes in these places. Right. And um, Vilsack pushed really hard to do this privatization scheme in inspection of poultry plants that would allow the companies to speed up the kill lines. Now, in the end, because of pushback from labor groups, he um, he pulled back on the uh, sort of allowing them all to speed up their lines by 25%, which is what they wanted. Right. But he left open the possibility. And of course, the next guy comes through is Sonny Perdue. And when the industry um, came to him and asked him for waivers to speed up the kill lines, he just started handing them out. And then you get the coronavirus pandemic. And Leah Douglas, who's been on your show, who's a great reporter from the Food and Environment Reporting Network, her work shows that in plants where they had the the 25% speed up, um, 40% of them had coronavirus outbreaks versus 14% of all plants. So the rate of outbreaks was almost three times greater in these sped up plants. And Vilsack didn't have to, he didn't have to push his privatization scheme. Uh, He was very enthusiastic about it. I covered it at the time. This is something that was really important to him. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have to do that. And it was a, a sop to the dairy industry. It would be really interesting to see how he handles that going forward. Mm-hmm. And then something, you know, it's just, I mean, I don't know about you, but there was just a, um, an, an article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, a really excellent piece of investigative journalism on the dicamba scandal. That, yes, um, I, I have not read scandal. it as thoroughly as I need to, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That looked really yeah. interesting. Yeah, and, I, and I it's basically it like the, um, this corporate crime where these companies knew this chemical was going to drift. They knew yeah. it wasn't going to stay in place. And they literally were using that as a marketing tool. So you can say, look, if you don't want your soybeans damaged by this drifting dicamba, just buy our product and your soybeans will be, um, will be free of damage. And they, they use that as a marketing tool. Um, and th- that's something I suspected and I saw hints at while, while, it, was, um, while it was happening. And I heard stories of uh, you know, seed and pesticide dealers telling farmers that, that I reported on. But this, in this article, these guys came up with the goods. That, that's what was going on. And Vilsack, so the Vilsack USDA, they had a role in that because they were approving all of these dodgy herbicide-tolerant products, you know, just the entire time, up, into, up to and including the Monsanto and I think Dow. Dow, which is on Corteva, was the 2,4-D product. And mm-hmm. Monsanto was the Dicamba product. They were approving those things. And of course, the EPA also completely laid down on the job. So if Vilsack doesn't have this on his own. He, um, this is also the <laughs> Obama EPA. But the Obama EPA approved these form- formulations without getting any independent data. And the, the, um, the weed scientists at these Midwestern and Southern land-grant universities were denied the ability to test for volatility before these crops were, before the, the chemicals were approved by the EPA. And the EPA knew that. And it was just, I mean, you would expect that from Scott Pruitt or whatever that other hack what, was who, who Trump appointed to head the EPA. Right, but the right. Wheeler, EPA yeah, Andrew Wheeler, that. yeah. And so now, you know, literally in 2021, um, th- there's going to be dicamba uh, crops being planted throughout the, um, the Midwest. Um, they're finding it in rainwater. They're finding it. Yeah. It'll stay in the air for 72 hours after it's mm-hmm. applied. Um, and t- to me, this is one of the great corporate scandals of the, at least the, the new century. And the, the, the Obama USDA didn't do anything to stop it. The, Vilsack, the original Vilsack USDA. And I, I just can't believe he's going back for a second round. Well, and then I mean, we, you know, we're talking about the race issue. He, he did not distinguish right. himself on this, the, the stuff we were talking about before about discrimination against black farmers within the USDA. He had a very self-congratulatory take on basically how he you know, basically cured the problem. But there's a great article by Nathan Rosenberg, who I mentioned earlier, that, that has, to do mm-hmm. with the, uh, has to do with the Black Farmers Justice Act 
Nathan Rosenberg and Bryce Stuckey have a great article in the calendar in 2019 about just how overblown uh, Bill Sachs' claims were about the sort of um, curing of the USDA on the race issue. It, it just didn't happen. Um, and, you know, even today, there's stuff coming out about civil rights leaders begging Vilsack or begging Biden not to pick Vilsack um, yeah. based on on some of these issues. Right. I thought Martha Fudge sounded like so such a breath of fresh air for the USDA, um, you know, sort of taking that uh, agency uh, sort of away from corporate farming for a change, you know, and putting it squarely into the hands of, you know, a group of people who will advocate for nutrition, better nutrition standards and, and uh, hunger, uh, you know, alleviation. And it just, I was just appalled that she did not get tapped for that job. I, she seemed so qualified for it. It was really, really shocking to me, actually. Yes. But Barry Estabrook, uh, who we both know and, and love dearly, um, he had an interesting take on it on a, on a Facebook comment. He said something like, "Well, they're they're hoping that uh, Vilsack will be able to kind of restore the agency, and then he'll move on." So I, I, yeah. I don't want to stay too much longer. I, unfortunately, we have to wrap this up in a minute or two. But um, do you think that's really what the what's behind this appointment, and that he'll you know he'll revolve back out to a far more lucrative position? <laughs> After he sort of, you know, restores the tattered fabric of this agency. I don't know. I mean, there certainly is generous. lots. What's that? I said that's a pretty generous um, analysis yeah. of, of his appointment. But, you know, nevertheless, there may be some truth. Yeah, and maybe Barry has an inside source. But, um, I mean, I'll say that there certainly is lots to restore. I mean, what, what Sonny Purdue has done to the USDA is jaw-dropping, the gutting of yeah. the Economic Research Service. Um, yeah. Just the, you know, turning it into a really hackish political arm of, uh, of the Trump sort of MAGA mafia. I mean, it's yeah. been it's been abused. And I guess there could be an argument of, okay, this guy ran the thing for eight years. He's, you know, supposedly a competent manager. Maybe he can he can patch it back up together. You know, th th there probably is something um, to that, and I think that that what 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 that gets us to though is the question of why did he choose um, Vilsack over Heidi Heitkamp? Now Heidi Heitkamp was the original front runner. She was in all yeah. the politi Politico articles about uh, Vilsack was in favor of her taking over the agency. Um, she's basically um, a version of Vilsack with less baggage. Like the right. couple of blog po you know, posts that I've written about Vilsack that, that are full of stuff about his his record at USDA, those wouldn't have been possible about Heidi Heitkamp. She just has a much lighter record on agriculture. She's more of a fossil fuel um, kind of a person than an mm. agribusiness person. Um, and I think it's possible that, okay, so... Heitkamp does one term as a senator from North Dakota. Um, she's got experience in the in the business world, but you know, here we have Vilsack, who's got eight years running this agency. Maybe we should go to him. Um, but it, so I, I think it does get it get us to it, it possibly explains why he chose her over um, Heitkamp. But the politics of it, like, couldn't you find an experienced manager? who wasn't in the thrall so much of like literally not being plucked out of the, the dairy industry. Wasn't there someone yeah. like that? Um, and, and that's, you know, like, I got to say, I don't have a name like that uh, at the top of my head. And I think that kind of gets back to the fact that there isn't a particularly deep bench uh, yeah. of people. I mean, you could think, you know, who are some other names that we would like? Well, there's Shelly Pingree. She's great. She's been a um, member of the House of Representatives for a long time. She hasn't run a big organization like that. Um, She's an organic so, farmer. Yeah. <laughs> so she understands I mean, I that. She, yeah. And she's, you know, a, a great farmer. But I guess there, you know, I, I guess there could be some kind of, um, you know, I want someone to go in there and, and repair that that office but I just think it's um, 
it's so tragic because you know something else you could do is have more of a of, of a visionary like a, a Marsha Fudge who you know has this very clear vision of nutrition policy, and then ha- you know find someone as deputy who's got experience running an agency if that's your um, yeah, if that's right. your goal. Now that you've got uh, you know a vision, and then someone who can sort of get the troops all going in the same direction. And well, repair something like the ERS, which is such a vital institution. So vital, and yeah. it's been just shivved by um, by by Sonny Purdue. Yeah. So I, I think that's where I am. Like, not super impressed by that argument. Right, right. I, you know, just to say one last thing about Fudge, and then you know we'll let it go, and I, I and we'll say goodbye. But but um, one of the pieces that I read, uh, you know, about this, maybe it was even yours. But the but the percentage of farms like the that the idea that the USDA, which administers you know WIC, women, infants, and children, uh, SNAP benefits, and you know various other hunger you know um, alleviation uh, programs, you know that 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 really is the bulk of the budget for the farm yeah. bill, um, as opposed to uh, propping up commodity farmers because let's face it it's not the fruits and vegetables guys that are getting crop insurance or the subsidies right so yeah. you know so it, you know it, to me it was just such a lost opportunity to not have this agency for once and particularly under the circumstances of the pandemic uh where so many people are going hungry and it's been so hard to get food distributed and we've seen the breakdowns in our food system due to you know, loss of truckers or loss of workers or, you know, whatever, um, you know, it would have been so great to have somebody who came at the whole agency with a completely different uh, policy bent uh, that was more about hunger and nutrition and less about whether or not uh, farmers are going to get their, you know, their crop subsidies or a better insurance rate for their corn crops. I mean, that I'm just like so over that. I'm so done with hearing about them. Uh, anyway, but we have yeah. to wrap it up, Tom. <laughs> well, just and to, to throw one more thing out yes. under the wire, and that is that um, that you know th- there was this idea that the transition was was pushing out, like oh, you know, we love Marsha Fudge, but we need someone who represents rural interests to take over the USDA, and Marsha Fudge is from Cleveland, and um, and the thing that's stupid about and she, she's from Cleveland and she cares about hunger, and hunger is an urban issue. Well, it's not um, the uptake. Pre-pandemic, the uptake of SNAP in urban areas is about 13% of, uh, of households. And in rural right. areas, it's about 16%. And, um, right. and rural areas are struggling economically a lot more. And there's a lot more poverty in rural areas. Yes. And so having someone with a specialty in hunger policy would actually be great for rural America. Um, and so that was a completely false dichotomy that they were trying to put forward. Yes, I thought so too. I, you know, I was so dis- the whole all the discussion around this appointment was very disappointing. The sort of farmer versus the hungry, you know, like balancing that. I, you know, it's like wait a minute here. <laughs> like, let's get real about the actual problems we have, you know, and what needs to be solved in the long term and then in the short term right now. And you know, anyway, Vilsack is not it, Tom. We have to draw a close there, but um, once again, the title of Tom's book, which you will be going out and buying immediately, please order it from your local bookstore, is called Perilous Bounty. And remind me of what the subtitle is. I've forgotten. And get at least 10 of them to give out as good. Yes. Of at least sub- 10. <laughs> yes. The subtitle is The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Tom, it's always a joy and a delight to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Wishing you the very best for New Year and holiday season. Stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy yourself. Keep up the great Thank work. Thank you, Katie. All back to you. Yeah, you bet. Okay, that's it for today, folks. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to my sponsor. Uh, one more show for the year of 2020. And then, oh boy, it's going to be a whole new ball game come January. Uh, I can hardly wait. Take care until then. See you next week and stay safe, stay healthy. So long for now. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.